0: and ideally to have their accommodation and living stipend paid by the International Organization for Migration, IOM, as they awaited orderly resettlement in a first world country, which they prayed would be Australia. Some of them, particularly the single mothers with clutches of children, said they were prepared to wait for years, if that's what it took, in the hope of resettlement, even though they had just a one in ten chance of getting one of the 80,000 annual global resettlement places on offer but most were there for the boats. Rudd could afford the luxury of a conscience then, because he had arrived in office to find the Manus and Nauru offshore facilities all but empty, and it was deemed that temporary protection visas were too harsh. There were no boats apart from the odd freak vessel. By general agreement, John Howard, assisted by a lull in international people flows, had stopped them. Rudd's shift soon aroused interest in South Asia, the countries from Afghanistan down to Sri Lanka and the Middle East in places such as Ketta, Kabul, Kandahar, Tehran and Abadan City, home to high numbers of discontented and at-risk people. Some of these began to move down to Indonesia again. At first, most were Afghan Hazaras and Sri Lankan Tamils who were coming to the losing end of a 26-year civil war. There were also people from Burma's Muslim, Rohingya minority, though they were scattered and disorganised, more downtrodden and less able to raise the smugglers' fees. Slower to move initially were the Iranians, although they would soon begin to gather in great numbers. They entered Indonesia in various ways, most excepting the Iranians, could not turn up at Jakarta's Sukarno-Hatta International Airport and apply for visas on arrival. The Sri Lankans would set sail east, ...across the Indian Ocean for Malaysia, or the westernmost Indonesian island of Sumatra, where they would find smugglers to ferry and bust them to the central west Java province of Bogor, where Chisarua is located. Those coming from the neighbourhoods of Afghanistan and Pakistan would fly to Malaysia, which issued visas on arrival to most nationalities, and catch inter-island ferries to Indonesia. These were usually the smaller groups, who were not as yet in the hands of smugglers or their agents... they typically had the name and number of someone who could help, or had plans to meet some of their own people in Indonesia and gain introduction to a smuggler. Others, particularly the Iranians, had been flying directly to Jakarta as half-disguised tour groups, sometimes with an agent on the same flight herding them through. That was until Indonesia banned on-the-spot visas for Iranians in mid-2013 supposedly in response to a personal request from Rudd to President Susilo Bangbang Yuryono. So it was reported in Australia, but later, when things went bad during the spying scandal, senior Indonesian ministers would say they'd cut the visa on arrival program not to help Australia, but because too many Iranians were bringing drug problems to Indonesia. Sri Lankans liked to avoid attention and were hustled down to Bogor to disappear into their own networks, lying low most of the other groups moved more openly. Upon arrival in Jakarta, they would book into one of the several usual suspect hotels, where they would meet their smuggler and do business. It was important to asylum seekers that they did this face to face, preferably with someone from their own country or ethnicity. People shopped with smugglers who had a reputation for getting people to Christmas Island safely. Deathboat smugglers went out of business or kept operations going by hiding in the shadows behind lieutenants. Not only were passengers investing what might amount to their earthly wealth, they were often travelling with children and wanted assurances the boats were safe. They also wanted to know that they would not be arrested in Indonesia. Such guarantees were easily given. These customer smuggler meetings showed how intimate the operations were. After the asylum trade restarted in early 2008, the Australian Federal Police in Jakarta would come to the view that there were not really any smuggling Mr Biggs, not in the sense of snakehead triad bosses or masterminds hiding behind complex walls of front companies. They were small-time businessmen crooks, usually from Iraq, Iran or Afghanistan, living openly in Jakarta and growing rich on the proceeds of smuggling. The smuggler bosses often used Arabic pseudonyms such as Abu Wasim or Abu Yunis, Abu means father of, and is as meaningless as calling someone mister. These men declared themselves to be haji, meaning they had made the pilgrimage to Mecca. It gave them an element of credibility with their Muslim clients. They wrongly imagined, because haji were expected to be honest.